Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Cup of Taboo. I'm your host, Tyler, and I am here to tell you about H.H. Holmes and how he destroyed the lives of many. Also, how he got caught and the absolute mess that his trial was. So sit back, relax, grab a cup of tea or coffee or, you know, whatever you feel like drinking, unless you're driving, of course, or working, in which case stick to the tea or coffee. But otherwise, sit back, relax, grab your drink of choice, and enjoy the story. I hope you're ready for your dose of evil, vile, and fraudulent, served in your cup of taboo. So, quick recap on H.H. Holmes, in case uh, you've forgotten everything already. H.H. Holmes was a man from the 18-somethings, and he built a giant building that people referred to as a murder castle. Well, they referred to it as his murder castle. And basically, he was really just a fraudulent dude. He was a doctor. His actual name is Herman Mudgett. He had multiple wives and many, many aliases, which he went by, and he murdered people, uh, mostly for financial gain, but he did, you know, it's it's an old story, so some of the things might be a bit twisted here and there, we don't actually know why he did what he did, but most of the, for the, for the most part, I think it's probably mostly for financial gain. I got a new laptop! So... Hopefully things work out better for me this time. I forked out my entire savings and bought myself a laptop and it works so nicely in comparison to my old one. I don't have to wait 15 minutes for my computer to start up. It's amazing. Oh man, it's so great. But, you know, I get the new laptop and then we're hit with like stage six, stage six load shedding, which uh, has really put a dampener on my mood, hey? Because every time I want to do anything, it's like, ah, load shedding. Uh, no power. Uh, no. So, I've been meaning to record this for a while, but it's just been, you know, my spirit is down. I'm feeling defeated. I'm feeling frustrated, deflated, annoyed. But I'm not going to let that get the best of me. i got some fairy lights for my room. Load shedding is starting in 10 minutes. So, I'm going to record by fairy light. It's going to be, it's gonna, not mysterious, it's going to be, it's going to be so, uh, no, the words are not coming to me. It's gonna, it's gonna be authentic. There you go. Authentic is the word I'm hoping for, but not really because you know I'm not talking about anything spooky or wonderful. I'm talking about some guy who murdered a bunch of people. <clears throat> anyway, so the last time when I left off, so the last time I left off, Holmes had pretty much decided that he was going to uh, murder Peitzel, Benjamin Peitzel, his partner. Oh, but that's Tolstoy. Let me quickly let him out. I can guarantee you he's going to start meowing out there in the next five minutes. But anyway, um, so Benjamin Peitzel was Holmes's business partner, associate, little god dog kind of vibes. 
And they came up with this idea that they were going to fake Benjamin Peitzel's death and claim $10,000 in life insurance. However, Holmes had other plans. He planned on actually murdering Peitzel so he wouldn't have to share the, the loot. But anyway, I'll get into that. So by January 1894, Holmes, who was going as Henry Mansfield Howard, um, his new wife Georgiana Yoke and Benjamin Peitzel were all in Texas. As far as Georgiana was concerned, they were there because Holmes was left a ranch in his uncle's will and they were there to take possession of it or, you know, one of those stories that he spun all the time. I don't know. He did it all the time. The poor, that poor, like anyone in his life, I feel so sorry for them. But anyway, when they arrived at the hotel, he signed them in using another alias. They were Mr. and Mrs. Pratt. And he obviously explained this away with another tall tale, which I'm not even going to get into because it's it's just exhausting, to be honest. And if I had to go into all of his tall tales, this this would be a six-parter of like two hours each, which nobody has time for. But I mean, I must say, this guy's creativity must have been through the roof because, damn, the stories he comes up with and like the aliases that he uses, he's basically Jake Peralta before Jake Peralta was a thing. Brooklyn Nine-Nine reference, in case anyone was wondering. Um, but I can just imagine him being like, Today, I am Mr. Pratt, and you are my wife. We are from yada yada yada, and this is my tragic backstory. Like, I can just imagine it, like, <laughs> don't know why I came up with that accent. I don't even know what that is, but anyway, this is what it is. So now in Texas, he wanted to recreate his castle, um, using, like, the same fraudulent means that he had done in Chicago, so that he could, again, claim insurance, I think, uh, probably... He, he, he took the same plans, which were already bonkers to start with, and uh, he started constructing the castle, 2.0. Uh, he, he managed to defraud over $20,000 there in Texas, and instead of running with the money, he started getting a bit big-headed, a bit brave, if you will. He started making a few mistakes, but they say that psychopaths believe that they will never get caught, and that's why they, you know, get caught. So they just think that they'll get away with everything and, you know, because they've gotten away with things before, but then life gets in the way and they get caught. He got greedy and he did something to do with horses. I don't know if it was horse fraud or horse theft or horse something, but whatever it was, um, they tried to flee Texas and they went on the run. And after a few months, he was finally caught for something else. He attempted to do some swindle where he bought a pharmacy, filled the shelves with drugs, bought on credit, then he sold them for cash and made a fake sale of the pharmacy to an imaginary person, and when the drug company tried to get him to pay them back, he told them it was not his problem because, you know, the pharmacy was sold to this other dude. So yeah, he got caught and he got chucked in the chinker? Chonker? The clinker? The chonk. What? Jail. Whatever, what is the Texan slang for jail? The clinker. No, I don't know. If you know, let me know. So he was in jail for 10 days, and there he met a Marion Hedgepath in prison, in jail. What's the difference between prison and jail? I don't know. Marion was a robber of epic proportions for the day. Uh, he was a train robber, kind of like Jesse James, Billy the Kid, that level of bad guy. You know, they would blow up trains and stuff and get away with the loot. Proper old school things. Anyway, Holmes like, started chatting with Marion and... He asked Marion if he knew, like, a, a bad lawyer, like a good lawyer, willing to do bad things. And Marion told him that he did know a guy. And, like, Holmes explained the whole situation that he wanted to do, like, with the whole life insurance thing. 
and he was told how he was planning it, and like how he was gonna split the money, and how he had been paying these premiums for a certain amount of time. He, and uh, after all that, Marion gave him the name of a lawyer, saying like, "Okay, you have to pay me for this, though." So Holmes promised him five hundred dollars for the name, and then Marion gave him the name of lawyer Jephtha. Jephtha, how? who was going to be this bad, bad lawyer, you know? So Georgiana bailed Holmes out of prison, and then they left the town. But the plan was made to, in quotes, kill Peitzel. He never told Georgiana about this plan, so she just blindly followed him from town to town after this, and it uh, it actually really affected her health, all the moving. She apparently was quite sickly and quite... um. She used to get headaches, uh, proper migraine kind of things. And she, I think it, you know, when you don't have a place to stay, it it really, like, messes with you, I think. I mean, obviously, if you're choosing to live the the van life, then it's a different story. But I think, like, for her, she probably just wanted to settle down and have kids. You know, that was what people did in the days. Got married, settled down, had children, made dresses and stuff. Like, (laughs) that's what they wanted to do. So anyway, Benjamin Peitzel told his wife Carrie about the plan, and obviously she was not happy about it. I mean, when your husband comes to you and suggests insurance fraud, you should always say no. After a while, he uh, managed to convince her. He told her it was going to happen in Philadelphia. And, um, yeah, the, the plan was in action. Holmes arrived in Philly before Peitzel in August, sometime in 1894. Georgiana went to go visit a friend in Illinois at the time, what, at first, then, when she joined Holmes, he was on his bullshit about some ABC printer copier company. Every time he left the house, he said that he was going out on copier business, which he could have done and actually like made an honest living, you know what I'm saying? But who am I to tell this man how to live? But anyway, that's what I'm just saying. Holmes met Peitzel, and they started to plot the days and weeks ahead. They decided that Peitzel would go by the alias B.F. Perry and stay at a house in the city and pose as a patent dealer because nobody would frequent that kind of business, right? But on Thursday, the 9th of August, the day before my birthday, I'm just saying, they realized that they'd made a grave error. (laughs) Get it? Grave? Lol? Anyway. They had been at this plan for almost a year, and they had forgotten to pay the premium that was due. Holmes freaked out at Peitzel, who was the one who did not pay the premium, and then stormed off. A short while later, Fidelity Mutual received a telegraphic money order of $157.50 as the semi-annual payment. I just want to know what a telegraphic money order is because I don't understand how that works. Is that somebody like posting money or is it just like a, a, a you post a check through the telephone? I don't, you know, I mean, EFT man, EFT before EFT was a thing. So anyway, they somehow just made it. The payment was late and August the 9th was the last day of the grace period. I mean, it's a bit sketchy, but it, it is what it is. They found a shabby little place at 1316 Hill Street where Peitzel could open up his shop and stay. It had a small makeshift shop at the bottom floor and one and a half stories above it. I, I don't know how a half story works, but uh, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I can just use my imagination. There were two bedrooms and rent was $10 a week. Directly behind this building was the city morgue, which made Holmes even more happy with the arrangement. So... Peitzel even managed to get a client, a man named Eugene Smith, who wanted to patent some saw thingamajig. So, 
he went into the shop. He was like, here's my saw thingy. Paisal was like, oh, yeah, this is cool. Come back in a couple of days. So he went back a couple of days later. And um, when he was there, Holmes entered the store and got kind of like pissed off because there was actually somebody there at this business that Paisal had started. And he just sort of like walked past because he was like, ah, oh, because now this man had seen him. So that night, Paisal and Eugene went for drinks together and they spoke about this little invention and they just sort of spoke about a few things. And Paisal told Eugene to go back a couple of days later, and then Eugene never saw Paisal, or as he knew him, Perry, again. So this is where things sort of start getting like quite wild. I mean, it's really wild, but this is this is the crime that just like it really fucks up Holmes's vibe. So on the day that Holmes had walked into the patent store and bumped into Smith, he spoke with Peitzel and told him that he had found someone who had a cadaver that would suit them well, and that he would be leaving to New York to collect the corpse. He gave Peitzel some money and then he left, telling Peitzel not to drink all the money away. Knowing that Peitzel would drink all the money away, Holmes was a very clever man. He knew that if he gave Peitzel money, Peitzel would drink. So on the 1st of September... Peitzel went out, he had a few drinks because he was back like on his alcoholic bullshit. He realized that he was on his last few dollars and he figured he would have to go to Holmes because he knew that Holmes was leaving the next day and ask for more money. So Holmes gave him more money, knowing exactly what he was going to do with it. Peitzel went to the pub and had a few more drinks and then he got some take-home drinks, which is a cool feature of the back thens and I think would be kind of fun for the nows. But anyway, so he got like his little flasks of alcohol. He went and he got some cigars, and then he went upstairs and drank and smoked until he passed out. At this time, Holmes knew exactly what Peitzel was going to do. So he told Georgiana that he had to go do some urgent business the following morning. In the morning, he left, nice and early, and went straight to 1316 Callowhill Street, where he entered the front door with his duplicate key, and he silently went up the stairs. He had a rag in his pocket and a vial of chloroform, which he doused, and covered a passed out, snoring Peitzel's mouth with it. So, remember how Peitzel had managed to somehow get a customer at his fake business, Mr. Smith? Anyway, Mr. Smith arrived at the business on Monday, the 3rd of September, to see if anything was done with his invention. When he arrived, he found that Mr. Perry, Benjamin Peitzel, was not there. So he sat around thinking that maybe he had gone out for something or other. When he didn't show up, though, Mr. Smith left. And he returned the next day, and when he returned, it looked as though nobody had been at the office at all. This concerned him deeply, so he decided to check if Mr. Perry was upstairs in his bedroom. When he got up the stairs, he saw down the passage that the bedroom was empty beside, besides like a bed and some clothing. But when he turned and looked in the back bedroom, he saw a body. It was lying on its back, and it seemed as though its head and face had been burnt. Needless to say, Mr. Smith freaked out and ran to the police. The weird thing is, it seems that back at this time, pharmacists were also doctors and coroners. So when a body was found, they would call a pharmacist and be like, Hey man, I need you to come out, like, check this body for me, please. Uh, you know, drugs and stuff. Surely that means, you know, bodies too, right? Anyway, so a pharmacist down the road was called by the cops to come and help with the cause of death and whatnot. They assumed it was a blast from a pipe, uh, like, you know, like a smoking pipe. Because the body was burnt and there was a pipe and some chemicals in the room. So the pharmacist slash coroner slash doctor arrived and upon entering noticed immediately that this did not look like an accidental explosion. No, no. The body was neatly laid out, lying peacefully on his back with a burnt top half. 
See, if it was an actual explosion, you would expect mangled limbs and a lot more chaos. So something was already fishy. There was a bunch of bottles with what seemed to be volatile chemicals in them, neatly arranged in a row on the mantel, all uncorked, and a smashed bottle next to the body. There was also a pipe packed with tobacco and some matches. The other thing was that the pipe was perfectly intact and not broken at all. So suspicious. So the doctor slash pharmacist slash car- So the doctor slash pharmacist slash coroner was there thinking, mm, this is a little strange. Also, that it would be difficult to identify the man because the burn damage to the face. Like, the, the, because of the burn damage to the face. However, good old Mr. Smith, who was there too, said that the general size of the man, as well as his clothing, is what he knew Mr. Perry to have been wearing when he last saw him the week before. The other thing that the doctor found interesting was that the body was lying in front of the open window where it would receive a lot of sun and therefore putrefy faster and the smell would never have tipped anyone off because of the morgue directly across the window spewing out its own nasty smells you see what I'm saying Holmes is flipping clever he knew exactly what he was doing putting the sun the body in the sun so it would putrefy faster leaving the window open because he knew that like the morgue stank because you know, bodies stink when they decompose, and I'm pretty sure back then morgues didn't have the wonderful freezes and stuff that they have today. So, flipping smart. The autopsy took place that afternoon by an actual coroner, coroner, car, help me, an actual coroner and his assistant. It was noted how the teeth were in bad condition, the hair was black and thinning, and a small, a small mustache and wispy goatee was noted. They found a normal brain, and the heart was emptied of blood, which indicated the what, sudden death apparently I, I don't know how dead bodies work but that's what they said the lungs were highly congested and full of blood as well as the liver and spleen being enlarged they noted that by looking at his kidneys they could see he was into the drank basically the kidneys were nephritic or as they said pig black the stomach was empty besides around an ounce or two of clear liquid clear clear help the stomach was empty besides around an ounce or two of clear liquid, which they determined to be chloroform. They also noted the smell coming from his lungs. Another interesting note was that only the top side of the arm that was resting on the body was burnt, indicating that the burning was done after death. The next day, the coroner released his findings that he believed that, P that Perry died due to chloroform poisoning, but the police clung tightly to the explosion idea. His body was placed back into cold storage where it was where it would wait for the standard 11 days for someone to claim it, and the death was printed in the newspapers that were sent out to all surrounding cities. So you can imagine when Benjamin Peitzel's wife Carrie saw in the newspaper that B.F. Perry had perished, huh? <laughs> sorry, wow, that she must have had some intense emotions. She was assured that it would be a fake death, but she could not help but feel all sorts of ways. A few days after Holmes killed Peitzel, because, spoiler, spoiler alert, he, he did kill him, he showed up at the place that Carrie and the kids were staying in, to, staying at to comfort her and move forward with the plan. He assured her that it was not her husband that was found, but a replacement cadaver, and Benjamin was safe, he promised. She believed him, thinking, uh, like, I think because she so badly wanted to believe that her husband was alive that she was like, okay, I believe you. But I think always deep down inside she knew that he was a lying pig. Holmes needed to get the body identified as Peitzel so that he could get the insurance money paid out. You see what I'm saying? So the thing is, he didn't want Carrie to do it because he was sure that she would recognize her husband and then blow the whole plan. So he told her that the first thing she needed to do was visit Jephthah Howe, the dodgy lawyer, 
And then she would need to write to Fidelity Mutual Bank explaining that B.F. Perry was in fact her husband, Benjamin Peitzel, who was assuming the alias B.F. Perry for some reason or another. When the claims officer, or whatever you want to call him at Fidelity Mutual Bank, received the letter from Carrie Peitzel explaining that her husband, Benjamin Peitzel, who was going as B.F. Perry, had died and had insurance with him, he was immediately like, this is suspicious, because the policy had not been active for even a year, and on top of that, the previous payment was made the last day of the grace period, which also kind of, like, it kind of strikes a chord, it's a bit odd, it strikes a chord, it's a bit odd. Then also, why was he, like, using an alias? So many questions. They sent an investigator to the scene to have a look at it, as well as to look at the background of Mr. Peitzel's life to see what was up. By the next Monday, however, they received a letter from the lawyer, Mr. Howe, stating that it would be that he would be bringing a relative of Peitzel to come identify the body and collect the $10,000. They had arranged that Alice would go with Howe to identify the body, Alice being the middle daughter. Carrie happened to be ill, as well as her baby Wharton. And she needed the oldest daughter, Desi, to help her look after Wharton. So the next child was 15-year-old Alice, who would be the perfect age because she would recognize her father but also be naive enough to go along with any plans. At this point, Holmes was tracking all over the place because he was dodgy, but also he had the small thing of his wife, Georgiana, that he had to consider as well. Every time they went somewhere new, he claimed that he had more work to do with the copier machines, and then he would leave her for a couple of days in a hotel and go off on quote-unquote business. Georgiana, shame. She was easily deceived by all of this, and she just accepted that it was a fact. At one point, he made a quick stop at Myrta. Do you remember her? His other wife in Wilmette? He told her that detectives or investigators would come by and look for him, and that if they did, she was to let Holmes know. Leads me to think that maybe Murta was in, like, in on a couple of things, but anyway, I'm, I'm not gonna say that. I'm just saying, if she was just so willing to just do it, maybe she wasn't so innocent. Anyway, the insurance investigators found out about Holmes and Peitzel's friendship, and they looked for Holmes, finding out about Murta pretty quickly. See, he thought about it before they thought about it. He's insane. So they visited Myrta, and she, being the loyal wife, told them that Holmes was away on business and that she would take down questions for him. She sent the list of questions, as well as a newspaper clipping, to Holmes. Holmes was a sneaky snack, sneaky snack, and he responded to the questions, stating what he knew about Peitzel and his appearance, and then he set off to Philadelphia, telling Georgiana he was on his way once again to do business. Alice, in the meanwhile, had left with the lawyer, Mr. Howe, on the 18th of September. They arrived in Philadelphia on or around the 20th of September and stayed in a hotel room. She wrote letters to her mother, which would later be very important to the investigation. They are written in the book Depraved and really are quite sad to read. On September 21st, Mr. Howe and Alice arrived at the Fidelity Mutual offices to speak with the investigators. When asked why Peitzel would use an alias, Mr. Howe, who had been coached by Holmes on what to say, suggested that maybe it was the fact that Benjamin had some financial issues in Texas that he was trying to avoid. I mean, it was just so easy and common to go by an alias back then. You could just decide that, hey, today I will be Tina, and bam, you were Tina. I would love it. You know, make yourself up. No problem. Nowadays, you've got to go to home affairs, and that's an effort. And also, coming up with a like, cool new name. Oh, drama. It's fine, I'll just stick to being Tyler. It's okay. Holmes arrived at this meeting, where the two pretended that they had never met, and they decided that the next day they would go and identify the body with Alice. The next day, when they went to identify the body, there was one more man there. Eugene Smith. 
the man who found the body, the inventor who knew Peitzel slightly. This bothered Holmes because he wanted it to seem that he had only kind of like known Peitzel, but also in his past life. But Eugene had seen him and Holmes together just days before Peitzel had died. Smith recognized Holmes, but he could not place where he knew him from. The body had to be exhumed from the grave to be examined by the mishmash of people, and when they arrived and the box was opened in a shed, it apparently smelled terrible because Peitzel's body was in, you know, a rather advanced state of decomposition. It had, after all, been a few weeks since he died. They decided to perform the examination right there, with Holmes assisting because, you know, he was a doctor, so he could. Howe and Alice waited outside. The man who was performing the examination could not find any of the marks that were put forward to identify Peitzel. Those were discoloured nails, hard to see because of the decomposing body, a scar behind the leg, hard to see because of the decomposing body and also burns, and you know that wart that really bothered Peitzel his whole life? That too. Because the body was now putrefying, like the skin was falling off basically. Holmes got frustrated and asked if he could please take a look, and then he carefully cut away the nail bed to be examined. He cut a piece of skin from behind the leg and peeled it off using his fingers to show a scar beneath the surface, and then he circled the wart with his lancet and the other doctor removed it. They then covered most of the corpse and left just his mouth open so that Alice could come and identify her father's teeth. Once Alice said that it was her father, Holmes said that he would pay to have the body cremated. The clever, slimy man. Because that way they wouldn't be able to see him again. You know, if this all fell apart and Carrie had to go look at it. No, no, it's just ashes. Anyway, the next day at the Fidelity Mutual Offices, Alice gave her sworn testament. In quotes, I am in the 15th year of my age. Benjamin F. Peitzel was my father. He was 37 years old this year. My mother is living. There are five children. Close brackets. Etc, etc. He was only 37, with five children. I'm sorry, like, what? Shem, no, thank you. Anyway, Holmes also gave a testament, and then hands were shook, shooketh, and deals were doneth. Howe had to stay behind in Philadelphia to collect the money, and Alice was handed to Holmes and told that he would take her back to her family. See, the thing is, Holmes, he didn't want to share his money with the Pitzels at all, so he had already come up with a really horrible plan to make sure that he walked away with most of the money, and unfortunately the Pitzels were going to have to pay more than they could have ever imagined. It does get uh, a bit convoluted, so I am going to try and make it as simple as possible. But basically... Holmes was plotting to get rid of the entire Peitzel family. He had to keep Carrie around until the payment went through. Hold on, I'm just removing the metal thingy from my milkshake. He had to keep Carrie around until the payment went through, so he came up with a plan to split her from her children. He told her that her, Daisy, and the baby Wharton were to go stay with her parents in Gulver for a while, and he would take Nellie and Howard to keep Alice company in Indianapolis. At this time... Jephthah Howe, the lawyer, was on his way back to carry with $9,715.85, like the check for that, for the life insurance. The insurance company decided to pay it, even though the circumstances were suspicious because they felt so terribly sorry for poor little Alice, who was dragged along into this. On the 25th of September, Holmes took a train to St. Louis to see Carrie. On the 26th, he arrived at the Peitzel home. Carrie was still looking terribly ill, but she was no longer bedridden. And he told her that Alice was doing great and that he had paid the hotel to look after her well. 
I mean, imagine just leaving a child in a hotel and telling them to look after her. The 1800s were wild, man. <laughs> Carrie immediately asked why Holmes hadn't brought Alice with and where her husband was. He told her that they, like, you know, there would still be some suspicions, so he needed... He needed her to go stay with her parents, and, and that's, like, ben, Benjamin would be laying low for a few months. He told her, like, you know, it would be suspicious if she was seen traveling around, and a single mother with five children, that would, like, definitely draw attention. So he was going to take Nellie and Howard with him, you know, that way Alice would have company, and she wouldn't look so suspicious. And then all of them would meet up in a few weeks' time. Poor Carrie didn't even stand a chance. This woman just wanted to see her husband, who she thought was alive and well. And now the smooth talker comes along and convinces her that he needs to take two more of her children to make sure everything went smoothly. And on top of that, this fucker also managed to make sure that basically she got no money from the insurance either way. Jephthah got paid his fee of $2,500, plus a four, like a couple of more dollars for expenses. Then Carrie was handed the rest of the money and Holmes pulled her aside and told her that Ben owed him $5,000, so Carrie handed that over, and then Holmes asked her for $1,600 for his own troubles uh, that he had gone through, and in the end, Carrie ended up with only $500 at the end of it all. What Holmes did not do, however, was pay the prisoner, Marion Hedgepath, the $500 he promised him, and this is what ultimately bites him in the ass later on. So Holmes then returned to where Georgiana was, and they had a passionate night together after Holmes showered her with gifts. You know, typical douchebag that you encounter, make you feel like you have to beg for their attention, then you keep them, you know, on the line by doing one nice small thing. You know, eye roll. Anyway, I haven't been hurt, not at all. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, he then told her that he needed to travel to Cincinnati for work. Georgiana would go and stay in Franklin until Holmes could give her more news. Understandably, Georgiana was rather upset by all the moving around and never seeing her husband, but she agreed and off she went to Franklin for a few days. He then returned to the three Peitzel children that he had and let them know that their mother was going to stay with her folks for a few more days and that they would need to wait to see her. The three children were very upset, so to appease them, Holmes took them on a shopping spree and got them new clothes and toys, and he also took them on like a little tour. Of the things he got them were also pens so that they could keep writing to their mother. I'm not sure if I mentioned it earlier, but every letter that was written Holmes took on the promise that he would send, but he, he didn't. He, he kept them all in a box, which is kind of really dodgy. He didn't like dispose of them or anything, so like if any of the kids wrote a letter, he would take it, fold it, and keep it in his pocket. Also, Holmes wasn't planning on going to Cincinnati at all. He just knew that Georgiana would be upset and told her that he like, he told her that so that he could get her to go away, so that he could get down to his dirty work. On Friday, October the 5th, Holmes basically stormed into a realtor's office, where a lovely old man named Samuel Brown was sitting. Holmes didn't even greet the man and just asked him to give him the keys to a house he had decided to rent in Irvington. Mr. Brown, the little cute old man, recalled how rude Dr. Holmes was, and this came into play later as, as well. A few hours later, Holmes arrived where the children were being kept and announced that he was going to take Howard away to stay with his cousin, Minnie Williams. Remember that she's dead. Uh, and the girls would stay in Indianapolis until the whole family could reunite. A few days later, after Howard had his things packed into a small wooden trunk, Holmes took him to the house that he had rented, which was a small secluded house with an attached barn on the outskirts of Irvington. There was a 16-year-old boy named Elvett Moorman who helped the owner of the house sometimes who went to go milk the cow that 
lived in the barn. Holmes walked in and asked the boy to help him assemble a large coal stove in the barn. And this dude, the 16-year-old, recalled that when he left that evening, he waved goodbye to a little boy, who was Howard, and went on his way. The next day, a well-dressed gentleman walked into a grocery store with a small coat and handed it to the grocer, saying that a little boy had left it in his house, and if he were to come around, if the grocer could please give it back to him, that would be great. That little boy would never show up. And that little boy was Howard, who was murdered by Holmes. He just dropped off the coat so that, you know, he could spread his lies. At this time, at Fidelity Mutual, there was one man who was still bothered by the Peitzel case. In his mind, things just did not add up. This man's name was William Gary. He kept thinking about the case and decided to give Jeff the Howe a visit, the dodgy lawyer that Holmes hired. When he asked how much Howe earned, he knew that there was something off because the sum was just too large for this kind of job, but he had no way to prove it. However, the proof almost fell into his lap because on the 9th of October, a letter was received that said, in quotes, Dear Sir, when H.M. Howard was in here some two months ago, he came to me and told me he would like to talk to me, as he had heard a great deal of me, etc. Also, after we got well acquainted, he told me he had a scheme by which he could make $10,000, and he needed a lawyer who could be trusted, and said if I could, he would see I got $500 for it. Then I told him that J.D. Howe could be trusted, and then he went on and told me that B.F. Peitzel's life was insured for $10,000, and just how they were going to do it, even going into the minute details, that he was an expert at it as he had worked it before, and that being a druggist he could easily deceive their insurance company by having Peitzel fix himself up according to his directions, and appear that he was mortally wounded by an explosion, and then put a corpse in place of Peitzel's body, etc., and then have it identified as that of Peitzel, yada yada yada, you know, close brackets, long letter about how he heard that Peitzel was dead by newspaper, and how Howard Holmes was on his way to Germany and that he never received his money, etc., etc., eventually signed off Marion C. Hedgepath. Remember him? The guy, the train robber? The bandit that Holmes met in jail? Yeah, told you it was going to bite him in the ass later on. So this is what started the hunt for H.H. Holmes, originally based on the fact that he defrauded an insurance company and possibly murdered his friend. He definitely did, they just didn't know it yet. And, you know, they also didn't know that he had murdered some children. They didn't even know about the people that he murdered before this for body money. So anyway, Holmes picked up the girls and told them that they were all on their way to Detroit. Detroit City! How's that uh, song go? The Eminem song? Detroit. Anyway. He then also wrote to Georgiana and told her to meet him in Detroit because that was where he would be working for a while. When he arrived in Detroit with Georgiana, he somehow managed to meet her like on the trip along the way. I don't know how it happened. But anyway, he signed them into a hotel under yet another alias, G. Howell and wife, Adrian. He wasn't very creative with his names, to be honest. Howell, Howard, Holmes. Ugh. Yawn. Even Adrian has, like, kind of a ring to Georgiana. That, you know what I'm saying? Georgiana, Adriana. I, I don't know. It just kind of made sense to me. There's, there's a vibe there. He arranged to meet the girls at the station that night and signed them into a different hotel under the names Etta and Nellie Canning. Do you see what I was saying Like in the last episode? This guy just schemes his way through life. It's exhausting. Like, just even reading about it, I was like, wait, what? How do you... I don't know, this is a lot more work than needs to be done. But imagine being him and trying to keep up with your, like, his own lies. Like, this is my name today, but this is my name tomorrow, and this is your name today, and this is why we're doing this today. It's just like, ugh, so much. 
So Carrie arrived in Detroit a few days later, expecting to see her children and her husband, because that's what Holmes told her. But Holmes told her that Ben would still be a while, and that he had left the kids in Indianapolis with a, in quote, nice widow. Now remember, they were there, in Detroit. Okay, Howard was dead, but the girls were there, and poor Carrie had no control over her own children. And she had no way of knowing anything. So she was so frustrated. She was so irritated. But she couldn't do anything. Because now her children are in this man's hands. And she's just like, ah. But I mean, to be fair. Like, I can see some people saying that she was super silly to let her children go off with a man. But remember, this poor woman was under so much stress. And she was not an educated woman. They were in dire straits financially. And Holmes was supposed to be a friend. He took advantage of everyone around him. So I do feel sorry for her. Holmes had eventually found a secluded house where he planned to dispose of Alice and Nellie, but then something went wrong and he had to change plans. So he told Georgiana that he was taking her to Niagara Falls as a gift for her devotion. But then he went to Carrie and told her that there was not a suitable meeting spot for her and Ben in Detroit, in America in fact, and that they decided it would be best if she and Desi and Wharton went to Canada and they would meet there. He had purchased train tickets for them, and they were to leave the next morning. He was leaving at nine in the morning, he told her. He then went to the girls and gave them tickets as well. They were going to leave the day after. He gave them their tickets and instructions on where to wait and all that jazz. When he did meet Carrie in Toronto, she expected to see Ben with him at the station, but Holmes spun some other kind of story and told her that he needed to find a suitable house before they could meet up. You know, so that they could bang. (laughs) But Carrie was pissed, understandably. Then Holmes, the sneaky bastard, pulled out a, like, in quotes, letter from the kids. But it was in cipher, for safety. I hope you can hear the, ugh. So anyway, it was probably just a bunch of symbols that he drew down. And then he, like, he read it to her. So basically, in the tone of one of her daughters, told Carrie how happy they were and how great school was. And just, it was all lies. It was just a bunch of, like, symbols on a page that he made up a whole story to. This man was, like, also somehow, like, manipulating three separate people or groups of people into believing him. And somehow keeping it all together. His wife, who thought they were there on a romantic getaway. Carrie, who thought she was going to finally see her husband and her kids. Like, her husband believing her kids are in Indianapolis. And then the two girls, who are her kids, who thought that they were finally going to see her family again, were also there. But they none of them knew about the other one being there. I think he'd make a great producer. Let me tell you, like, you can organize that. You can organize a freaking good TV shoot, I'm just saying. <laughs> anyway. On the 24th of October, Holmes had found a house in a remote area and went to the nearest neighbor, an old man named Thomas William Reeves, and asked for a shovel because his sister was moving in next door and he wanted to dig a pit of potatoes for her basement. I mean, did they not have actual floors back then in basements? Like, were basements just dark holes with soil? I don't... like a Minecraft cave? I don't know, it seems a bit sketchy, but apparently he wanted to dig a hole in the basement because there's no floor in the basement. Um, that same evening, Thomas was on his porch when he saw a wagon pull up and he saw Holmes and another man get out with a large wooden trunk, a bed and a mattress, and that was it. On the 25th, Holmes booked the two girls out of the hotel he had put them in, and they never returned. It is assumed that he took them to the house that he rented and murdered them there by forcing them into the large wooden trunk and gassing them, because a small hole was found on the trunk later on, where they believed that he pumped gas into it. But, I mean, I'll, I'll get into it later on, when I get there. That night, he told Carrie she had to leave immediately because there were cops all over the place that he had rented, again, another lie, and that she should meet him in New York. 
He then told Georgiana that it was time to them, for them to go to Germany, finally. He just needed to quickly do some things between Canada and there. One of them being New York. So now I think Holmes was like starting to feel the pressure, you know, when you take on too much. And at first you're like flourish, you saw, and you're like, yeah, look at me, I'm doing so good. But then keeping up with it all becomes increasingly harder and eventually you start to like bomb out. So this is basically like burnout, but the criminal manipulator version of it. So he started to panic, I think. The investigation was started by Fidelity Mutual Investigators, and I must admit, for people over 100 years ago, they did really, really, really well. Imagine having to find someone with no phones, no find my friends, no social media, just good old investigative work. Really, it's, it's something special, I think. I mean, it did take them very long, and they didn't get very far, but they did work their butts off. And then they realized that Holmes was very elusive, and just, they couldn't, so they decided to call in the big guns. The Pinkertons. I'm sure you heard of the Pinkertons, right? <laughs> Let me give you a quick history lesson. The Pinkerton Detective Agency started in the 1850s by accident. They grew to be one of the biggest detective agencies in the world, and they are still active today. Their logo was a big eye with the slogan saying, We never sleep. And this is where the term private eye came from. That came into use for detectives. It's pretty cool, huh? They were also the first ones to make use of mugshots, and they started the first database of criminals. So, that's your history lesson. Back to the story. So anyway, while they're doing their detective work, Holmes was out there doing his murder work. He, um, <laughs> not his murder work, just his general scheming shit that he got into. He went back to his mother and father and even visited his first wife, Clara, who he told that he was terribly injured in a train wreck, like, I mean, like his life, <laughs> and that he had amnesia. And then while he was lying in the hospital, he accidentally got married to a different woman that he had met there, a, a wonderful nurse lady by the name of Georgiana yoke and he just suddenly had brain surgery and remembered that he was actually married to her and like the whole spiel poor clara swallowed it all up and believed every word and holmes promised that he would return to her but he left with no intention of ever returning but i do think it is interesting when a killer knows they're being like pursued they will oftentimes go back home or back to like their childhood place where they'll like go for like one last visit you know it's like i think it just speaks to the human condition like where you really just want to be by your comfort place, like before you know you're going into a shitty spot. I don't know. Anyway, he went to Boston where the police and detectives had found out he was going to be staying and he was arrested on the 17th of November. They didn't quite know what kind of monster they had just arrested as they assumed he had just pulled up a terrible insurance fraud, killing a man in the process. But um, it did come out though just how horrible Holmes really was. When Holmes was taken into the be interrogated, they started out by telling him that they arrested him on the warrant of horse theft in Texas, because there was still a warrant out for that. Holmes was not happy about this, because the Texas prisons terrified him. But then when the man from Fidelity Mutual walked in, he realized that they really wanted him for the insurance fraud, and he was eager to confess his insurance fraud crime, without mentioning the actual murder that took place, of course, because he knew that this would get him time in prison in Philadelphia instead. He told the detectives that, detectives that Peitzel was still very much alive and that the, the body that they had found was provided to him by an old friend from medical school. He said that he had met with Peitzel on many occasions and even listed the locations that they met at. The detectives then started questioning him on the location of the three missing children, where he spun another story that they were in fact with their father, you know, wherever he was. He couldn't say where, but he knew that they were all together somewhere. Yeah like, altogether by being dead, right? 
Holmes. You killed them all. They then arrested Carrie Peitzel and started questioning her. She was said to have been hysterical with panic. She first told the detectives that she had no idea about the scheme and that she had thought her husband was doing legitimate business under the name Perry, and when she saw in the paper that Perry had died, she knew it was her husband. Uh, yeah, you know, she was trying her best to just be innocent. She obviously was lying, but the detectives... But the detectives commented on her, like, absolute grief and worry over her children. They were like, okay, she's lying about this, but that she's freaking out about. A few days later, Herman Mudgett, alias H.H. Holmes, Carrie Peitzel, and Jephthah D. Howe were officially indicted for conspiracy to commit fraud. Benjamin Peitzel was left off that list because they truly believed that he was dead. They had a coroner explain that if a body had been transported in the way that Holmes had said it was, doubled up in a trunk, that the marks of where the body was bent would show. The body at the house that was found was lying perfectly flat and had no such marks. It was also rigid. And as the coroner explained, once a body is bent and becomes rigid, there is no way to unbend it and for it to stiffen again. So, there was that. And then the last point was that a body being transported would have been preserved in alcohol, and the body that was found had no indication of having alcohol covering it. They thus concluded that a person was murdered in that house, and they believed that it actually was Benjamin Peitzel. I mean, they were correct, but damn, that's some pretty good work. Because, like, the 1800s, I am impressed, man. I am super impressed. If I sound any different, it's because I had to stop recording because of load shedding, and then I had to carry on the next night. So, sorry. But you know what? We will we will continue onwards and upwards. So, within a few days of all of the shenanigans that went down, over 50 people who Holmes had swindled in one way or another came forward with their stories. They all told of how Holmes was so charming and deceiving that they didn't even realize that they were being taken for a ride. So, like, you must know, he, he was now being outed, if you will. Holmes and Carrie Peitzel were transported to the prison from the jail on the 23rd of November. This prison is called Moyamensing. I'm sure that I've mentioned it in a previous episode, but I cannot for the life of me remember who it was that went there. Um, I could have gone back and looked, but I just didn't feel like it. So, yeah, if anyone can let me know who else was at Moyamensing, that would be nice, eh? So on the 7th of December, Holmes had learned that Carrie had broken down and told the investigators everything that she knew about the scheme as well as the fact that they were going to exhume the corpse and have Carrie look at it. Holmes knew he was fucked, so he called someone into his cell and broke down, telling the man that the body really was Peitzel, but Holmes hadn't killed him. No, no, Peitzel had committed suicide. He, like, gave some sob, some sob story about how he had found Peitzel and then staged the accident because he saw an opportunity there to still get the money. When asked where the children were, Holmes responded that they were safe with Minnie Williams, who, if you remember, is also dead. So, uh, there's that. So Holmes was taken to court over this whole conspiracy thing, and one of the detectives who was on the case, named Detective Frank Geyer, or Geyer, could not get the children out of his head. So he made it his lifelong mission, although his lifelong, he made it his mission in life to find them. And so he went on, like, this wild goose chase trying to, like, find these poor kids, dead or alive, hopefully alive in his case. He was like, please, can these kids actually be alive? And Holmes told them, like, this big fat lie about the fact that he believed the children were with Minnie Williams in London because she had started a salon in London or some bullshit like that. So the detectives then even got Scotland Yard, Scotland Yard involved, um which was fruitless. And uh, after two weeks of searching London and not finding anything, they decided to 
do like a proper search of all the areas that Holmes was known to have been in the past months with the children. Carrie was discharged from prison in the meantime because they felt that she had suffered enough in losing her husband and now possibly also her three children. Um, she was just completely broken human, so they said they felt really sorry for her and they said they were releasing her from Moya Mensing and Holmes had to remain there. And he still just carried on maintaining his innocence when it came to the kids, though. He was like, nope, didn't didn't touch them, didn't do anything to them, promise you that, promise you. But, I mean, like I said, he was a filthy, filthy liar. Detective Geir, or Geir, I'm going to say Geir, because South African, and ugh, like if it's spelled like that, it's Geir. Anyway, he was like a bloodhound, and he followed the cha- the trail of the children um, as best he could. He absolutely would not give up on finding them. And after about three weeks of searching, he eventually found the girls' corpses in the cellar of the house on St. Vincent Street in Toronto. Alice lay on her side and Nellie lay on her face with her legs resting on her sister's body. Both girls were naked. This was in July of 1895. The newspapers went crazy with the news and one thing was for sure, Holmes was just screwed. Screwed! They did find both girls without feet, and this was perplexing to them. Uh, they thought maybe they had accidentally like chopped them off when they were digging. But when Carrie Peitzel told them that Nellie had a slight club foot, which was a very distinctive trait, um, they realized that Holmes probably wanted to conceal their identities, so he removed the feet of both girls to try and hide who they were. So, Geir still needed to find Howard, which took him a little bit longer, but he eventually got there and when they got Carrie in to identify the girls she could only identify them by their teeth and their hair because they were so decomposed they didn't want her to see the whole the whole picture which is I mean imagine must be horrible on the evening of the 19th of July 1895 the police finally started searching Holmes's castle where they found absolutely horrifying things they were first struck by the absolute weirdness of the place and how nothing made sense at all they were there for quite some time, just trying to make sense of everything. Um, and when they eventually got to Holmes's office, they found his big-ass vault, which had an imprint of, like, a human foot, as though somebody had been trapped inside, and they were trying to push the, like, you know, when you like, put your back against a wall and you push with your feet, it looked as though somebody had, had tried to push the door open with all their might. Um, and then in the human-sized stove, they found a, a couple of bones that strongly resembled, resembled human bones. Uh, they found more bone fragments as well as some other material and like a piece of gold, like ladies, like watch chain, like you know the the chain of a watch. They found that in the in the stove as well. So they took it down to the jeweler in the building, who was able to identify the chain as one that he had made for Holmes for his lady friend Minnie Williams. The men in the cellar found a few pieces, like pieces of material as well from women's clothing. They also found um, like this concealed tank, which they accidentally pierced with their pickaxe. So everybody like escaped the building because, you know, the gas was leaking from it. And they were like, we're probably going to die. And then when they thought it was safe, one of the men went down later. He couldn't see, so he lit a match, which, I mean, yeah, the, the cellar blew up. It they, he, he exploded the cellar, like, you know, <laughs> not thinking that it was a flammable gas. But anyway... When they eventually got everything under control and carried on with their search, um, they they then assumed that Minnie and Nanny Williams were killed there, and they also started to suspect that possibly Julia and Pearl Connor were also like going to be found there as well because these people were all missing. Um, they had received a panic letter from Julia's father begging them to help find her because he hadn't heard from her in so long, and yeah, so. 
In the basement, they found a bunch of chicken bones, which is like kind of weird, but they also found a rope with like a noose at the end, which looked like it had dried blood on it. Uh, this was in like the little dumbwaiter shaft area where they believed homes would push victims through the door from an upper floor and like they would then drop and hang to death. On the 23rd of July, they made a horrible discovery of skeletal remains of a child, which they believed to be between be they believed to be between four and eight years of age, and they ultimately concluded that they had found Pearl Connor's remains. At the end of August, Detective Geyer was nearly giving up. He arrived in Irvington, where he came across that friendly old real estate man who I mentioned, you know, who Holmes was so rude to. He immediately recalled this rude young man and told him which house he had rented to him. They searched the basement and they found a children's trunk, which was later confirmed to belong to the Peitzel children. They didn't find a body, though, and um, so they left. But the boys of the area, like the little kids of the area, decided to play detective. And they were digging through the house and they found children's remains in the chimney. So what they did is they were digging through the chimney and they found, like, they pulled something, which was like a clump of material. And then a whole bunch of stuff fell out and they... Uh, had finally found Howard Peitzel. They found a jawbone with teeth, which they would show to Carrie, and she confirmed that they were Howard's teeth. Now they just needed to get Holmes to hang for his crimes. So finally, after this, I'm switching between like what was happening. So the castle was like searched through. They decided to open it as some kind of freak tourist attraction, you know, morbid curiosity. You know how people are. And funnily enough, it wasn't like a retired or an ex-police officer who decided to do it. But literally, like, as the search ended, somehow the building caught on fire and the top two stories were, like, burnt down. No one knows how it started. They just, the, the Castle of Horrors was closed for business. The shop level was, like, sort of fun. So I suppose they could carry on with business. But the actual problem areas, they were gone. Burnt to embers. So now at this point, the whole world was curious about the monster that was Holmes. People started publishing books, like, like anyone was writing, but anyone could just write a book. They didn't even have to be true. They were just writing shit and people would buy it and believe it. And it was just like, wow, they're making gang cash. So Holmes was like, I'm going to get on this train. So he, write, he wrote a book about his life. Um, uh, what's it called? Holmes. I don't know. Anyway. Um, he is a notorious liar, so nothing can really be trusted, but, oh, the, the, the book was called Holmes' Own Story, and Holmes literally was like, okay, first of all, I'm going to use this to make money, and second of all, he used it as a way to try and, like, get people to believe how innocent he was, and he wrote this, he, it was like a, a sob story about his life's, like, upbringing and how, how tough things are, you know, the typical stuff. So, yeah, he, he said, I am a cock, yes, but I am no murderer, no, no, <laughs> Sure. Okay. So his trial began on the 28th of October in 1895. It only lasted six days, apparently. But apparently it was an affair. <laughs> Let me tell you, apparently it was intense. After a day or two, he decided to get rid of his lawyers and represent himself. People were shocked at how well he did at it until he didn't, you know? Like, if that makes sense. So he was like, he studied law, he got himself some extra time to study, and then he represented himself. But the minute that people started questioning him, he would start crumbling. His lawyers ended up returning. Then, like, when Georgiana entered the courtroom, he had this whole melodrama where he cried and cried, and she told him that she wasn't even his wife kind of thing. It was just, it was apparently an absolute mess, and... I mean, I can imagine the sensation surrounding it. It must have been quite a time. 
Anyway, at the end of the trial, Holmes was found guilty of murder in the first degree and he was sentenced to hang. So on the 10th of April, the following year, the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was like a, a newspaper, carried a half-page announcement for an upcoming piece titled Holmes's Con- Holmes, Confesses to, uh, Holmes Confesses Many Murders. See, so he was set to hang on the 7th of May and they believed that he just wanted to get it all off his chest. He also had like nothing less left to lose, I, I guess, and he, he decided to really lean into the whole the devil made me do it thing, you know. Um, I think he also just really wanted to be remembered for something and yeah, he was. We're still talking about it over a hundred years later, so he did something, I guess. In this piece that was released on the 12th of April, he admitted to 27 murders, which, I mean, I'm going to tell you what he did. You can decide which ones you think are true or not, because um, like I said, he's a filthy, filthy liar, so some of them, I'm, I'm, I am i don't know. He said that his first murder was only in 1886, and I mean, there was apparently proof that he had murdered before that, but anyway... He said, first murder was in 1886. His victim, he said, was Dr. Robert Leacock of Baltimore. He said that this was a failed insurance scheme, and he killed the doctor. Another doctor named Russell was his second victim. He said that he was a tenant at the castle, and he had fallen behind in his rent, and they had a quarrel, and he struck him over the head with a heavy chair. This was supposedly the first corpse that Holmes sold to a medical hospital, and I think he realized then, like, oh, money, or at least maybe if, if he was saying the truth. Next up was Julia Connor and her child Pearl. Julia, he said, died from the operation, and Pearl, he poisoned. The fifth victim was a man only named Rogers, who he supposedly killed by, you know, he took him fishing, and then he moved him in the head with an oar. Victim six was a man named Charles Cole, who Holmes said also died by a fractured skull, but that an accomplice had made the fatal blow. Victim seven, victim seven was a domestic named Lizzie, who worked at the castle restaurant. He said he suffocated her in his vault. Next up were Frank Cook, his wife Sarah Cook, and their niece Mary Harrakamp, who he killed because they saw him trying to dispose of Lizzie's body, apparently. Mrs. Cook was supposedly pregnant, so this brought the total to ten. Emmeline Sagrand was victim eleven, suffocated in the vault. Number twelve was a young woman named Rosine von Josend. He poisoned her and then buried her remains in the basement. Next up, I have lost count, uh, 13, I think, was a man named Robert Latimer, who tried blackmailing Holmes, so Holmes locked him in a room and let him starve to death. Then he mentioned a lady named Kate, a young Englishman, a widow, who he could not remember her name, and a man who came to the fair. He used his usual methods on these people, being asphyxiation, starving, or chloroform poisoning. Thereafter, he then killed two women by the names Anna Betts and Gertie Connor by substituting their prescription medications for poison. He also claimed to have killed a man by the name of Warner, who was supposedly the glass-bending man, by burning him to death in the glass-bending kiln. Victims 21 and 2... 21 and 22... Okay, thankfully the book started numbering them again for me. Where the Williams were the Williams sisters and their brother. Oh, wait, so it was the Williams sisters. Then 23 was their brother who... You know... I didn't even know it existed until right in this confession. Then, obviously, there was Benjamin Peitzel, Howard Peitzel, Alice Peitzel, and Nellie Peitzel. He also admitted to ruining Alice Peitzel. Now, this obviously shocked the nation. Everyone was disgusted with this monster man, more monster than man. But, but even more shocking was the fact that some of his named victims came forward very much alive. And at the same time, it was believed that he had actually killed many more tenants of the castle who he didn't even mention in his tell-all at all. Uh, the one detective believes that Holmes just could not help 
but lie. And he believes that he, what he had done is he, he mixed truth and fiction so that people would forever be guessing, which is probably true. So you, you decide who you think. Who you think were the real ones there. Holmes had his last meal on the 7th of May, and then he walked to the gallows. When the floor dropped, his neck did not break, and he hanged there for 15 minutes before he died. At precisely 10.25am, H.H. Holmes was pronounced dead. So there is something called Holmes's Curse, where a bizarre series of misfortunes befell many of the people involved in his case. Dr. William K. Matten, the coroner's physician, who was a witness against him, died of blood poisoning. This is shortly after the, the, the hanging. Coroner Ashbridge and the judge in the trial suffered from life-threatening illnesses shortly after that. Superintendent Perkins at Moyamensing committed suicide. Peter Segrant, Emmeline's father, was horribly burnt in a, ca in a gas explosion. And Detective Frank... Kaya was struck with a serious malady. I don't know what a malady is, but I think it's a, a mental thing. I don't know. Not long after the office, uh, not long after this, the office of Ola Perry, Ola Forrest Perry, the man from Fidelity Mutual, um, his office was gutted by fire and everything burned down except for three things: a framed arrest warrant for Holmes and two portraits of the criminal. They all got out unscathed. Several weeks after the hanging, Reverend Father Henry J. McPake, the young minister who gave Holmes his last rites, was found dead in a yard. Then a man named Linfin Biles, who was one of the jurors on the trial, died by a freak accident in his home where electrical wires had touched his roof and he tried to get them off dying by electric shock. In a couple of years after Holmes's death, Marion Hedgepath was killed by getting shot while attempting to rob someone because he managed to get out of prison. And finally, the old caretaker of the castle, Pat Quinlan, 20 years after Holmes's death, committed suicide, taking the last of the castle's secrets with him. Now, I don't know. Things happen, right? But, like, there's a lot of things to happen, in, like, to a very specific group of people. So, curse or not, whether it's the curse of Holmes, I do believe that anyone who ever came into contact with this man was cursed in some way, just by him being in their lives. Poetic, don't you think? Anyway... That's going to do it, guys. That was H.H. Holmes, his devious schemes, horrible murders, and his freaky castle. Let me know what you think. Do you think he actually killed that many people? Do you think he killed more? Let me know on Instagram at cupofdaboo underscore podcast or on Facebook. You, I mean, if you wanted to, you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you, if you feel like it. Um, so, yeah. Oh, also, I just wanted to like mention this because... It's just one of those things that's currently being spoken about a lot at the moment. I have just watched the Netflix series Dharma. I'm actually on episode 7 at the moment by Ryan Murphy. And holy shit, it is insane. It makes me feel so uneasy. Like, I can't binge it. I have to watch it in pieces because it just makes me so uneasy. The performance by everyone is phenomenal. I mean, Evan Peters, my man. It's the, the, the thing is, I am wildly attracted to Evan Peters. He is a beautiful human. And he is portraying actual demon which really confuses me because like I hate Jeffrey Dahmer and everything about him but in this obviously he's being portrayed by Evan Peters and like the makeup is fantastic like it really made him look very similar to Jeffrey Dahmer but for some reason I'm still wildly attracted to Evan Peters and I feel gross for being attracted to him in this role because it's like he's Jeffrey Dahmer and it's like ugh but anyway it's it's really good it's it's just, it's wild um but Anyway, it, it, it like really makes you see what an absolute monster someone can be. And like I think, you know, I do these cases, it's different because I'm, I read about something and I tell it. But the, like, you know, that's it. You read about it, you tell it. It's terrible. And you, you think to yourself, wow, that is shocking. Like this, this is shocking what happened. But 
when it is portrayed in the way that it was portrayed in Dharma, it's just, it's freaky. It just makes you see what the victims went through and it makes you feel things like it's just too real for comfort. But I would recommend it, you know? So if you feel like being uncomfortable, watch it. Uh, I also think that I want to do an episode on Jeffrey Dahmer because he was really messed up. Like, he did this for weird, freaky reasons. Like, uh, his is, like, all sexually motivated, I think, and just proper, like, fuckery. Whereas I think Holmes, he, I think I think Holmes mostly did what he did for monetary reasons. Like, I think he, it was mostly greed. I think Holmes took people's lives for his own gain. I don't think he was sexually motivated at all. Like, I don't... I don't believe that he took pleasure in murdering people. I think he did it out of frustration and not necessity, but in his eyes, necessity, if that makes sense. I think that he was like, huh, I could use this person in a way to gain from this death. So that's that's what I think. Let me know what you think. And uh, yeah, I'll chat to you soon, yeah? Okay, bye.